Increasingly, when I think about what's essential, in bringing together speaking and meditation, words and the wordless, it's something Strangely, that unless we really look for it, we won't even it won't even come to mind. And it's exactly the moving back and forth across that very boundary. And what's so strange about it? perhaps, is that we're doing it all the time, but it's just invisible to us. Whenever we speak, we are conveying something that at its essence is not about language, it's not about words, it's the thing. If we say, I'm cold, well, we're conveying an experience that is a wordless experience. If we say, you look lovely today, that's not an experience that is essentially languaged but we make it so, we bring it to language in order to convey something, either the kindness that uh, you know, we want to offer or the sense of this physical experience of seeing the proportions of the face and the hair and the colors and so on, that that's pleasing on that particular day. But there's no inherent 
words to that experience. So all the time, whenever we use language, we're moving back and forth across that boundary of that which has no language and we're giving it language. And whenever we listen to someone else speak and find meaning in it, we're going the other way. We're receiving something that comes in the form of words and we're somehow translating it internally into an experience. So someone says, um, it's windy today. Invisibly to us, we've received basically sounds, parsed them into words, put them into uh, some kind of structure that uh, you know makes would make sense, and those words tap down into prior experience, images, and so on, and we get it. Oh, it's windy today. We get the the images or the sense of history that tells us what that means. So we're doing this all the time. Well, why do we pay attention to it then? Why am I talking about it? Because we're taking the audacious step of bringing language together with meditation. And in meditation, not only are we concerned with what has no uh, inherent linguistic nature, the movement of the mind and so on, but actually Meditation itself is a path to diving beneath the concept forming of the mind in such a way that we can have insight into the very nature of the mind's world building. So we're, we're moving beneath that as a very explicit intentional project of meditation. It's a project of liberation. It's a project of being freed from ignorance about the very nature of this constructing process and all of the pain and confusion that happens when we're identified, when it is invisible, when it is unseen. So if we're going to do that, if we're going to work at that subtle level in meditation that drops beneath the concept formation, drops beneath even the world-building process if it gets, if the mind gets still and concentrated and alert enough, 
beneath that whole world-building process, then any invocation of language, any invitation of language into this process had better be conscious of how it's crossing that those lines, how it's moving back and forth between the wordless and that domain of language. Otherwise, the risk is that we simply import the relative crudeness of language into a subtle process, the process of meditation, the process of insight meditation. And in that crudeness, we just lose the meditative essence. That's the danger, right? And then it just becomes wordy, wordy thinking, language-based thinking, whether we're talking with another person or we're sitting by ourselves. It just becomes uh, something that partakes of and is stuck in the world. The world as in the fabrication that we call the world, this life. So this question of bringing language into meditation, speaking and listening into meditation, you might say forces us, but we could be kinder and say it invites us to look very closely at whether or how language points beyond language. It points beyond itself into something that comes closer to that fine grain of the workings of the body-mind, the essence of the body-mind. For meditation practice, then, we actually develop a refinement of observation and a refinement of practice that is skillful and supple at that boundary, words in the wordless. From the standpoint of Buddhist psychology, the key concept is sanya, perception. So by way of you know, giving us a doorway into what I'm talking about, even as I'm speaking now, each of us is 
taking in the world from our own perspective through these sense doors. Each of us is seeing and hearing and feeling the body, sensing the body. Probably not too much taste and smell right now, I don't know. And there's, of course, mental activity and mental states. All of this is happening for each of us. And we say, oh, okay, it's like this. I'm sitting here, you know. Greg is offering a talk. It's nighttime and so on. And the actual experience that you're having, that I'm having, is this, you might say, flood of continuous sense data, sense impressions. There's nothing inherently dividing anything about it other than what comes in through the eye and what comes in through the ear and the body. Those are divided. But what's coming in, let's say, through the ear, since I'm talking, is not inherently divided into anything any more than this visual tableau that you see in front of you is not inherently divided into objects like Gregory, Buddha, Bell, Light, other person, and so on. That's perception. So the brain has these mechanisms, but let's talk about the mind. The mind is parsing it out, parsing this flood of visual information into chunks that we call people and Gregory and Buddha and so on. Perception. Object formation. Now, what we have this remarkable ability to do is associate objects with words. So now you have man or you have, more specifically, Greg, or you have teacher, or whatever, you know, you can lay any number of words over this percept. And each one has its tonalities and its meaning, you know, different meanings. Greg's just a guy, right? Teacher. Well, maybe you've got some construct about teacher. Some, you know, overblown thing or something like that. Or maybe there's the emotional reaction, teacher, like like or dislike or something like that, response to power or something like that. Or Buddha. You see this thing, Buddha, and out comes whatever you're, you know, however many times you've walked into meditation halls, heard talks on Buddhism, seen photographs of the Buddha, and bowed to the Buddha images or been repulsed by Buddha images or whatever has happened for you. Buddha. So now the word and the percept point to this whole kind of a pyramid of 
constructs. And all of a sudden, it's very powerful. We could say something like, Greg is a Buddhist teacher, and it becomes a something. Just, just a bunch of sounds I just made. Greg is a Buddhist. You know, it's just sounds. But it links into our, you know, decoding of that. And then it goes back to our entire history of Buddha, Buddhism, Greg, teacher, all that stuff. And these can all be manipulated in different ways. And language has that power. A single word can be vast. It's a percept. But that single percept can key into something really huge. What about the word never? Two syllables, never. Wow. That's big, isn't it? Never. So you don't need too many words to put with never to make a pretty big deal. I will never meditate again. That sounds like a big deal. I'll probably never fall in love. Love. Now there's a good one. So you get the point that 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 the the universe of words is a universe of percepts that taps into the total framework, and and again, back to Buddhist psychology, Sankara, all the constructions, all the memories, all the background. But what about experience? What about if I'm trying to convey something to you about how I felt when I had to, let's say, bury my cat. I talk about going and digging into the hard earth. Well, you can get a sense of hard and earth and how it's not easy to dig into hard earth and you can feel that. And you, maybe you've lost a cat before. And you can tap into your memories and get that. But can I say anything about the you know, burying 16 years or 18 years of this strange little friendship. And how much more so if I want to say something to you about what it's like to look at you and to feel the space between us or to see the recognition or the care in your eyes as you look back at me. What can I say that will go back to that? Or let's make it even, you know, perhaps more challenging. If I'm trying to describe something about just what it's like being aware right now, and I look around and 
just the fact that there's a world that that there's uh, you see it, it, it even leaves me wordless if I worked really hard and we had a really long time I might be able to say something about what it's like being aware but I think you get the point it gets, can, can be very subtle now this this boundary this this uh moving back and forth between words and non-words. As I said, we're doing it all the time, like I'm doing it right now as I'm speaking, and you're decoding it right now as, as I'm speaking, as you're listening. But if we want to speak in meditation, A, without leaving meditation, without stopping meditation in order to speak, not separating them, right? So not leaving meditation, and B, capturing something of experience as it actually is, as close as I can possibly get. then I need to, for one thing, I think this is parts obvious, speak having cultivated and while absolutely maintaining and not dropping the meditative qualities of the mind. And if you want to listen in meditation, then your listening also has to be ripe with the sati, the mindfulness, the samadhi, concentration, the quality of investigation and energy and, and so on. So there needs to be the steadiness of the mind in the meditative qualities. But also... There needs to be, uh, we can cultivate, and there needs to be, a familiarity with what it's like to come to an experience whatever it is that one would speak of, let's say a feeling or an observation or something like this. And you might say, park next to it, you know, come into adjacency with it. And right there, find what is this experience, you know, whether or not at this moment I'm able to language it. I need to be able to bring the mindfulness right up to it and just dwell there. You might say absorb or be intimate with the experience. Now, in meditation, this is what we call 
sati, right? This is knowing the experience and there's enough steadiness, enough tranquility to just remain. And we, we do this, for example, when we observe the breath. Breath is rising and falling. And there may or there may not be an attention to this or that feature of the breath at any given moment, but the basic experience, the overall experience, is one of just bringing awareness. However you do it when you practice with the breath. To, let's say, if the abdomen or the nostrils or the whole body breathing or whatever your practice is like. Now, a word can point you there, like, I'm going to stay with the breath. You might have a thought like that. And you can even say, okay, let's say the breath at the, uh, the rising and falling of the abdomen. Noticing as the diaphragm you know, naturally relaxes out and the air comes into the lungs. But when you get there, even if the car that you've driven there has some words on its wheels, when you get there, it's just the thing. So you do this, you already do this in traditional meditation. But in Insight Dialogue, you're called to do it with a variety of experiences built on the contemplations and so on. And not just to arrive at the experience, but to come back out of the experience, to leave the parking lot with your, the trunk of your car full of something to say. In other words, you've gotten something. So let's say... I'm contemplating the experience of the mind being wide and open, which is something we've done. So the car comes into the parking lot of experience itself and notices, let's say, something about the visual field and the vividness and maybe that it seems to go behind and around you and around us or that, it's, that it seems way vaster than this room, or that it's just a bubble like here. And I'm, I'm, naming, I'm naming facets of present moment experience. That means I need to observe the experience, and that's where the pause comes in, just mindfulness of what is this like. And observing it, there's some gathering of qualities. Oh, I'll say this about it. I'm noticing this aspect of it. Like the brightness or the, you know, or the, the breadth or the narrowness. And now I'm going to speak that. So there's a picking up and a dropping and a picking up and a dropping of the language. Perhaps the best example that I could give 
is in this moment of experience because that's exactly how I'm giving this talk. I don't know where this talk is going, but it has to unfold itself to make something that is both sensible and has value for you, the listeners. So each pause is a dipping into experience. Experience from the past, but also experience right now. So when I pause, I'm actually saying, you know, what, what is this? Where is this? Where have I been? Where am I going? But it's not like I, I have to cognitively work through and remember everything. It's all just part of the kind of the micro zeitgeist of experience. It's just like, this is what's happening. But when I want to describe something here and now, then these pauses are, are where I fill up the trunk, fill up the well, fill up the thermos, you know, whatever it is, in order to say something. So, this is what we do, can do, in our meditation practice. So if you bring something to mind now, just to let you experience it in your own way, Let's say, um, bring to mind, let's say, a, a good friend. How's that? Just whoever that might be for you, okay? And maybe you have a visual image of him or her. What's the last thing you did with this person? When's the last time you saw them? So, if you were to tell me about this person, you could because you're so good with language, like all of us humans, you could just tap into this deep pool of memory and start talking and not stop. No mindfulness required. Right? I mean, my God, it's a good friend. Got to have a lot to say about this person. But if you want to speak the truth, which is to say, if you want to speak from sati, then you need to touch down into, bring this person to mind, pause right there, sense into, uh, so I'm picturing, for example, who comes to mind? A friend of mine, he's a poet who lives in in, uh, Portland, Oregon. So his image comes to mind, and I pause. It's like an image is floating there, but I'm actually seeing all of you, so I don't even know where this image is. You see, I tap into the well, and 
I'll say he's slim, he's medium tall, he just wrote a very successful novel. Now I could be spinning all of this off in, in you know three seconds. I could tell you big long stories. But there's a moving back and forth that I'm trying to do to for there to be mindfulness with each and every feature which would allow me to actually, if I wanted to, and if we wanted to take the time, move into pretty subtle aspects of our relationship. Because I'm not just giving you what I call pre-cooked vegetables. These are fresh vegetables. You know, it's real. It's here. All the more so that the pausing and this agility at the boundary of just a bare experience and words when you want to convey meditative experience. The example I just gave was fairly trivial intentionally because it's something we can all do right away. So anyway, we're invited in our practice which we will be doing with Speak the Truth, Listen Deeply, to explore this space of words, of the wordless, to drop down into, beneath, let's say, to drop beneath the easy pickings of uh, emotions and images and thoughts and so on. To pause right there as these contemplations touch the mind. And to find layers of truth that might not otherwise be known. And as we do so, the meditation practice itself is unbroken. Unbroken. So even as mindfulness gets really, really bright, really strong, it's robust. It doesn't fall into the conceptualizing. It doesn't fall into the world-building process that is so easy to do when we invoke language. And when we listen, again, that quality of mindfulness and concentration that allows the steadiness as experience is unfolding, as the words are being received, we don't just fall into the world that's being built for us by the other. The words touch, and the process of going from the perception into the whole body-mind experience of making meaning can be known with the steadiness of mindfulness and concentration.
So this will be our practice. It's something that we can, you know, begin to explore, maybe play in, look around, and gradually get pretty good at. And when that happens, then the whole of the teachings, for example, of the Buddha can come into our meditation practice without just being thinking about Dhamma or something. It becomes real, becomes a lived experience. Contemplations become something that go right to the heart. Wisdom is something that moves between meditative practitioners. So there's a lot of reward if we're willing to do a little bit of work. minutes that we could either sit quietly or if you wanted to I don't usually think questions and so on is are too useful following a talk like that but I'm certainly open to it if it feels like you think it would serve you could perhaps say a few words on the role of metaphor in this process. Um, Yeah, metaphor is a one of any number of ways that language tries to point beyond itself by kind of jumping the rails of what the language is, you know, in its sort of base way intended to do. Um, So uh, we're constantly using metaphors that actually by definition we don't even know we're using them. Um, And if I talk about, for example, you know, the uh, vividness of awareness, what does that mean? It's already metaphorical. Or if we talk about uh, stream of consciousness, you know, all these kinds of things. So it's it's a means by which language tries to transcend its clunkiness. Mm-hmm. 
without metaphor, we wouldn't be able to convey anything at all. Actually, it's you know it's built into the structure of of what language is. Did you have a more specific? Yeah, I'm thinking about experiential metaphor. Uh-huh. Um, it's something I experience with with sitting partners, mm-hmm. where some visual or experiential metaphor will come up, uh-huh. and there's a, a gathering around the metaphor, so the metaphor becomes. Right integral to the experience becomes the experience. Right, right. Yeah. Would you care to give an example? Very common one is is to have the metaphor of, of water come up. Mm-hmm. Um, usually it's a, a, a deep still pond mm-hmm. and the words become ripples on the pond or become yeah. fish in the pond. Sure, sure. And that's, I mean, that's, that's a, a great example of what I was saying, where those images then index into other experiences by which we're able to evoke something that goes beyond just the, the blunt meanings of those words. Exactly. Mm. I don't. I don't know that I said anything of value, but uh, it's, I appreciate the, the 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 necessity, the deep value of metaphor. Yeah. Just another thought came up to me, and that's of made up words. Made up words. It's it from that last exercise that. Uh, As far as I know, all words were made up at some point. So. <laughs> I think I asked a question about the example you gave of bringing to mind a friend. If you are in touch with that image, and a certain experience arises. And then you speak about it. Is it possible that that would be what you would say might be the same thing you would say if you were just talking about it off the top of your head? Would it sound the same to to another listener? Conceivably. Conceivably, sure. But I would suggest that if when the image of your friend arises, there's a a pause 
and uh, an exploration of the touching of that image on the mind and how it moves through the body and the feeling of fondness and so on. That there's uh, a likelihood that not only will you be experiencing a continuity of meditative qualities, but that you'll actually be noticing aspects of the experience that require, that don't reveal themselves without um, careful investigation, more time, and so on. Now, it's certainly possible that and, and in that sense, one is not necessarily better than the other, but for meditation, for sure one is. Yeah. But I mean, if we're going to function like that when all we want to say is, pass the asparagus, please, <laughs> then it's, you know, uh, obviously it's not, it's not the most uh, efficient to pause between every word and really get the whole mm, feeling of the asparagus. <laughs> it just doesn't matter that much. And you just want to eat. Uh, but for the, main, for the devel- development and increase of meditative qualities, it makes all the difference in the world. And for keeping open the door to... Uh, something that we might call insight. It makes all the difference in the world. Thank you. I appreciate that clarification. about what's metaphor <laughs> I thought he was asking about meta <laughs> <What's> <laughs> meta like how does this relate to meta <laughs> which I was like really interested in that question and then it was like oh no metaphor but so I'm trying to understand I guess for me there's something about the the very concepts of meta of compassion of 
doing this practice for the benefit of all beings. Just that, that the kinds of beings we're trying to cultivate informed by Buddhism. And the places of like language today, um, I didn't, I didn't get in a way. Some places, yes, and then others. Uh, had a, a kind of abstraction that helped me cultivate patience, but not necessarily like I get what's happening here. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, doing your practice today? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The afternoon pieces. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm trying to understand what you're saying tonight about the place of words next to something else. Uh, Uh Well, when we actually move into practice tomorrow, Mm -hmm. you'll have uh, a very direct opportunity um, to explore this with practices and contemplations and guidance that is specifically oriented towards exploring this, which today was not. So, so today was scaffolding. Or maybe well, yeah, sure. Yeah, it, yeah, preparatory practice, but it's not just preparatory, it's actual practice of developing mindfulness and uh, investigation. In developing a steadiness of mind mm-hmm. as you uh, examine experience and this rests also on the steadiness of mind that you develop in your daily silent practice mm-hmm. and on your retreats that you've been on so there's a it's all, it's all interconnected with developing the meditative qualities of the mind and there's lots of ways to do that so um when you bring those qualities into an insight dialogue retreat, of course they serve um, the process of mm, uh, supporting uh, a deep investigation of in this case, use of language and so on, or if we're not investigating the use of language, we're actually just immediately practicing and examining something like impermanence. Mm -hmm. Then the steadiness, the concentration from your prior practice lets you stay with that even as you're speaking about it. And And if the steadiness isn't there, then it can get pretty abstract and difficult to connect with. So... And for all of us, it comes and goes. So, uh, you've been very careful not to um, tell us what good inside dialogue and bad inside dialogue are. 
but we've been experimenting with that and experiencing actually <laughs> different qualities of experiences. And um, I'm listening very carefully to try to discern for myself. Um, I can tell when I'm working not that well, when I'm working better. Uh -huh. And I just wanted to, to, to say back to you some of the things that I heard to make sure that I'm hearing you correctly and also to, um, to see where I'm not right on. Mm -hmm. But this, I, I'm pretty clear about this idea of adjacency and, and use this hand as a way of communicating an up-close and immediate experience that's now as opposed to usual conversation, which draws richly from the past and the constructs that are habitual. So, I'm not always clear when I'm drawing on those constructs and when I'm not. And I would say that You've also given us guidance at other times about efficiency of language. That somehow the more verb, words start to tumble, the less close to the experience I'm likely to be. And the more, the more fluency there is, the more likely I'm lapsing into automaticity, automatic thoughts and patterns. So I've noticed, I think, that kind of um, efficiency of language and really taking time to pause in between the words uh, sustains the inquiry. And also and, and it's also this the inquiry is a third piece, this this vigor and really intensity around the inquiry of the experience. Because we could talk about we could spend 45 minutes talking about tingling and feed. Okay. Um, and then there's so there's some, but there may be more than the, the tingling and feed. And so there's this ardency, I think, about the inquiry that also gives fruit to the practice. But there's also a non-skillful inquiry, which I think I have participated in, where it's like, let's make something happen here. Oh, sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that, that's not skillful. Yeah, and in, in that sense, that's no different from traditional meditation, where if you were sitting there trying to attain some state that you believe is meditative or something. It just becomes its own kind of separate conjuring practice. Um, but there is another, uh, if I could go back to this question that you had or this, this one of the points you made about when you're drawing from story, when you're, you know, um, we make sense of the world and we communicate to each other by way of stories most of the time. And the sense of self is a story. 
my life is a story. My relationships are a bunch of stories. So, in order for me to speak to you about, let's say, uh, a relationship, and I bring that to mind, so I bring to mind, let's say, someone that I love, and the image comes up, and I have this investigation, and you might say I'm in the story of it. I'm in that which is triggered by the reflection on this person. And what is, wouldn't you say that that's probably a story? Isn't that kind of, it's a, right? So how can now I now speak the truth? This person isn't here, and, and what makes it present moment? What makes it present moment is bringing this forward now, The fact is that it is um, invoking in me these different feeling tones in the body, different mind states that are arising, different memories, and a memory is just a memory. I'm not in the memory. I'm seeing it come up. And, And as I bring mindfulness to the feelings in the body to the mental images that arise and so on. This is now in this moment experience that I now speak to you. And in that sense, I can speak the truth even though this person isn't, isn't here. It becomes present moment. As opposed to I, this person comes up, all the stories come up, and I just sort of fall into and identify with and move around in those stories, and now I'm telling you all about this person and the stuff we like to do together and what they're like and you know what I like about them, what I don't like about them, and I can just go on and on. But it's not, there's no present moment aspect of it at all. All I'm doing is drawing from memory and spewing it out to you. Poor you. Because all you're getting is some old history. Who needs it? Yeah. There is one pivotal aspect of this speech, this inside dialogue practice, that in that the language and the experience of here now is conveyed to another. So there is a tremendous sense of um, responsibility Mm -hmm. and care Mm-hmm. to bring what's alive and appropriate and relevant yeah. abiding by the contemplation will be observing the breath or, or the, what's difficult to approach uh, 
it really doesn't matter is the awareness of the other the, it's almost like a feedback loop that organizes mm-hmm. the what to say and in mm-hmm. looking internally to all the process that gets activated mm-hmm. and discern oh look at that oh gee, I don't know. is this relevant no uh, but then if something comes up again and again I say, well let me, let, let me take a look again Mm-hmm. What's going on here? Right. And there is there is a constant uh, back and forth that it can it happens because there's another human being that yeah. and there's trust, this space. Yeah. Whatever space is, but it's it's here. And it's not so much out there in Right. So in that is there is like permission to explore just about anything as long as it's, it's care to ourselves and care for the other to be able to choose and really be steeped in what does it feel like in the body mind what is it doing what is it connecting mm-hmm. with? And from there, it's like going deep sea. Right. Okay, here. Right. And in order, getting back to where I was in my talk a moment ago, in order to do that, that's, that's where this pause comes in. Now, if the mindfulness is really bright and really strong, by the way, pausing mm-hmm. doesn't take time. Pausing is not about time. Pausing is about sati. So the process you're just talking about of dipping down into what is what is going on here, what is present now, would be that place of, you know, applying the mindfulness to present moment experience in order to bring something back out that can have language, even though the experience does not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that is a relational, transactional process, is what I'm hearing you're saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Great. So, um, I think we'll close because we're about five minutes over. Um, I guess I'll just, I would like to leave you with uh, perhaps to be intrigued enough um, between now and when we begin practice tomorrow morning, um, meaning the dialogue practice, Um, because that's uh, more than 12 hours away, a lot of thought moments in there. Watch as your mind uses language internally and when it doesn't. That would be enough. That would be enough to show you a lot. Yeah. And here's a good example of our using language to go beyond language, this metta, this loving-kindness practice. 
as you, many of you know, probably most of you know, <coughs> in the Karaniya Metta Sutta, the Buddha likens the quality of kindness and care to the feeling a mother has for her child, her only child. So even if you're not a mother, if you're a male or you didn't have children, perhaps you can sense into that. If you are a mother, then it might be very immediate for you. So you could just ask yourself, do I want that for, let's say, the people in this room, your community for this week? Do I want these people to be safe, peaceful, healthy, comfortable? balanced just follow the Buddha's advice a little further extending it to all quarters above and below and all around outward and unbounded might there be the wish that all the beings that are known would be safe and free from harm. Healthy, happy, comfortable, peaceful. Being seen and unseen, born and yet to be born. May they be comfortable and happy. Beings far and near.
pervading everywhere without limit, without bounds. without exception. May all beings be well and happy. May there be peace. May there be peace. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.